call them black sheep. And that's when we're being kind. There are other names for those people. We call them outcasts, 'er ne'er-do-wells, reprobates, persona non grata, or pariah. They are those people in our lives, sometimes family members, who we wish we weren't related to. Those people that cause us to cringe. And maybe we even lie a little bit and we say, well, I'm not really related to that person. It, it's just by marriage. Or we say, well, I used to be related to that person. And every now and then, they show up at Christmas dinner. We were cleaning up my mom's house and we were in the, the back bedroom where all this stuff had accumulated over the years. And there in the back bedroom in a dresser, in a drawer, turned upside down, was a picture of someone who used to be a part of our family. Someone that we shared history with, someone that we shared a lot of good times with, and then suddenly we shared way too many bad times. And a relationship had ended, and, and when it did, I don't think I ever heard my parents acknowledge her name again. I don't think I ever heard it spoken. If it was, it was just in whispers, in hushed tones. And my last memory of this person is a picture we found in a spare room in a drawer upside down. Maybe you've got a picture like that somewhere in your family. Maybe you are that picture in your family. Maybe your photo is in a, is in a drawer somewhere upside down as a reminder of your failure, a reminder of of your sin. Maybe there's a family dinner that you're not attending this year, or if you are attending, uh, you're attending uncomfortably. Christmas is hard. Christmas is hard for for so many people. It's a reminder of what they're not. It's a reminder of where they've failed. A recent survey, 45% of people who responded to a recent survey said they dreaded the Christmas season. Why? Because it's a trigger. It's a trigger. It reminds them. It's this time of excessive self-reflection and overthinking because others seem to have it all together and they seem to have so much. And Christmas makes us feel inadequate. It reminds us of our failures. It reminds us of broken lives and broken relationships. If there's anybody, if there's anybody in Jesus' family history whose picture was upside down in a drawer in some forgotten room, that person is Bathsheba. She's a reminder of failure. She's a reminder of a broken relationship. She's a reminder of sin, of the worst scandal imaginable. She is not just a family embarrassment. She is a national embarrassment. She was blamed for the downfall of the golden age. She's blamed for the downfall of David's kingdom. And yet, when you look at, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, there she is. She's, she's listed in that genealogy. She's in Jesus' family history. And if she's here, then what does that mean for every one of us who've ever felt like the black sheep, like the, like the outcast? Bathsheba is here for everyone who has ever been identified by their failure. We're going to be way back in your Old Testaments today, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're actually going to bounce around to several scriptures, but, but if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, It's on page 262 in those blue Bibles in front of you. I really want you to see this passage. If you're using your Bible app on your smartphone, this is a great time to use it because I've got all the Scriptures listed there for you. You know, the the Bible authors were masters at subtlety. 
They were masters of giving us just enough information that we don't have to make assumptions, that we can, we can figure out what's going on and what the point is. If, if we pay attention, even with, with details that seem sparse, there's enough to lead you to the truth. And that's what we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 1 begins, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's, home, of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, well, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David, so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse 1 alone speaks volumes. Look at verse 1 one more time. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, I've got a quiz for you. Just a three-question quiz. It's really easy, okay? This is an easy quiz, but I need you to yell out answers because there are people who listen to these sermons on the internet, and they may not understand it as well as you, okay? They may not get the answers right, so I want to make sure you help them out, okay? First question, based on verse 1 alone, who goes out to battle in the spring? The kings, right? You guys are so smart. Look at that. You got one for one already. Okay, now here's a tough question. Who is the king of Israel. David, right. Oh, you guys are doing great. This is two for, two for two. Here comes the third one. This one's kind of tricky. This is a yes or no question. Did David the king go out to battle in the spring? Oh, you're right. You guys did a good job. Amazing, amazing job. Now, you're meant to notice that. It keeps you from drawing wrong conclusions about this story. You're meant to notice that. Now, we don't know why David didn't go out to battle. We don't know if maybe David was afraid. Maybe he had seen too much battle. Maybe, maybe he was a little shaken from all the battle he had seen previously. We don't know if maybe David was lazy. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he just didn't want to go to battle. But whatever the answer, David was negligent. He did not do what the kings were supposed to do in the spring. And the author intends for us to see that. Now, I mention that because many years ago, this church sent me off to church camp probably to straighten me out. <laughs> and at church camp, I love church camp. Church camp, we'd have all kinds of fun things to do, all kinds of games with water balloons and all kinds of stuff. And every evening at church camp, you had a little church service. And, and they would have someone who would sing, and they'd have a group that would sing, and they would do skits, and then someone would preach. And it was usually a very forceful speaker, someone who could really stir you up and get you excited, very, very emotional. And one year, we had a speaker who spoke on this story. He read that passage that I just read to you. And then he told us this. It was Bathsheba's fault. 
He told us it was Bathsheba's fault. She knew what she was doing. Bathing on the roof in full view of the king? She did it to entice him. She did it to lure him away. But David's not even supposed to be home. David's supposed to be in battle. It, it says late in the afternoon, David got up from his couch. What's he been doing on his couch all afternoon? Judge Judy's on, and then you know, Dr. Phil's on, and I just couldn't get up from the couch until he finally did. That, that bothered me. And I'm usually a very polite person. Sometimes I don't know when to keep my mouth shut. Uh, so as a, thank you for agreeing. Uh, and so as a young high school student, I approached that speaker and I said, how can you say that? David is, is idle. David, verse 1 tells us David is supposed to be at battle and he's not. He has stayed home. He has sat on his couch all day. And, and, and we know historically people bathed on their roofs back then. The sunlight would warm the water, then you would take your bath. That's what you did. That, that's how society worked back then. And I was laughed off because I was just a kid, and what did I know? But I was very uneasy about what that man had just told that group of high school boys and girls because he had just told every boy there, he had just told every boy there that she was asking for it. And he had just told every girl there that it's your fault if this happens to you. And I recognize that same feeling in myself these days when, when news breaks about another, another accuser that comes forward about sexual assault and people call the accusers liars and they say things like, well, why didn't she come forward sooner? What does she really want? I, feel, I recognize the same feeling in myself when over and over again I hear people say of rape victims, if she hadn't dressed like that, if she hadn't acted like that, if she hadn't looked like that, if she hadn't gone to those places, none of that helps. David was supposed to be in battle. He wasn't supposed to be home. Idle hands are the devil's playthings, and I'm pretty sure that goes for other idle parts as well. Own it. It's wrong. Stop blaming the victims. Bathsheba carried that stigma through her entire life, and on through history. And she is here for everyone who has lost their identity due to their failure. You know, it's not just about being identified with your failure. You no longer are you. You are your failure. You're no longer a person. You're your mistake. You are your... Bathsheba had been dead for 500 years. Over 500 years when Matthew wrote his genealogy. And yet, how does Matthew list her when he's listing Jesus' family history. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, he writes this, Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. I'm sorry, who? David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. The Greek is actually worse. The Greek says, actually says, David, the father of Solomon, by she who had been the wife of Uriah. Matthew can't even bring himself to mention her by name. He only mentions her by her failure. And I want you to think about that. Here is an apostle. Here is one of Jesus' chosen twelve. Here is a man who is part of the foundation of the church. 
Here's a man who had been a tax collector, who had been a, a, a scheming, conniving tax collector working with the Romans, and Jesus had forgiven him. Here's a man who, in Matthew chapter 9, tells the story about a paralyzed man being lowered down through the roof by his friends. And Jesus says to that man in Matthew 9, verse 2, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Matthew knows that Jesus forgives sins. He knew the truth of redemption. He knew the truth of restoration. And yet, all his life as a Jew, he had known that this is her fault. She did this. And he can't even get, begin to, to write her name or, or speak her name. She was she who must not be named. And in fact, after the Psalms, her name's never mentioned again. The last reference you'll find to Bathsheba, the last reference to her name, is in Psalm 51, verse 1, which the prologue of that Psalm 51 begins with these words, the psalm, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Did you hear that? After he had gone into Bathsheba. Not after she had enticed him. Not after she had, she had trapped him. After he had gone in to Bathsheba. And throughout Psalm 51, David takes blame for his sin. He seeks forgiveness from God. He owns up to his sin. In verses 3 and 4, David writes, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And he says to God, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He didn't blame Bathsheba. He acknowledged his sin before God and he put himself in God's hands. I discussed this with a few people this week. I discussed them with, with two ladies here in the church. Talked it over with them a little bit. I even discussed this sermon with a friend of mine who is an abuse counselor who daily deals with people who have been sexually assaulted, people who are rape victims. Every day she deals with those people. And I was asked an important question about this passage. What if she had said no? What if when the servants came from David, Bathsheba had said, no thanks, I don't think so. I've got to wash my hair. Not, not going to do that today. And I just kind of flippantly said initially, well, then it would have been the, the next hottest girl on a roof somewhere <laughs> that we'd be reading about. But that's not the answer. The truth is, in that culture, you did not refuse the king. If the king made a request of you, you did not refuse the king. It simply was not done. That's the kind of power the king wielded. Just like there are cultures today where you don't refuse a Harvey Weinstein. There are cultures today where you don't refuse a Matt Lauer. You don't refuse whoever it's going to be next week that we'll find out about. That position of power is so easily abused. And all these years later, we remember David as the king. And we remember Bathsheba as she who had been the wife of Uriah. But that's not truly the end of the story. And failure does not have to be our identity. Failure doesn't have to be the end of our story either. You see, Bathsheba is here for everyone who has longed for a new identity. The last time you find the name Bathsheba in the Bible is in Psalm 51. But if you read the Bible chronologically, if you put it in, in chronological order, the last time she's mentioned is actually in 1 Kings. Bathsheba is present at the death of, of her husband, King David. She is present at the anointing of the new king, her son, Solomon. 
In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, it says Nathan, Nathan the prophet, the prophet who had confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, David, or Nathan goes to her, and what does it say? It says, Nathan, Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Not Bathsheba the adulteress, not Bathsheba the sinner, not Bathsheba the failure, not Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of the king, the mother of Solomon. First Kings chapter 2, David dies, Solomon becomes king, and Bathsheba goes to him. It says in verse 19 there, so Bathsheba went to King Solomon. And I want you to hear that. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon. You think back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4 says, David sent messengers and took her. But here, she went to the king. David sent messengers and took her. You didn't refuse the king. But this time, the king doesn't refuse her. It says, so Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. She sat on his right. Some of you will remember a story from Matthew chapter 20. Matthew tells this story also where the mother of James and John, two of Jesus' best friends, two of the apostles, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and she says, I have a request to make of you. And he says, what is it? And she said, allow my two sons to sit at your right and your left when you come into your kingdom. I want my boys on your right side and your left side. Why did she ask for those places? Because those were the seats of power. Those were the seats of influence. Those were the seats where you had the king's ear, where you could tell him what you thought, and you could influence him and change his mind about things. Where's Bathsheba sitting? The right side of the king. The right hand of the, of the king. This isn't Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah. This isn't Bathsheba, the the, the mistake of King David. This isn't Bathsheba the whore. This is, this is the mother of the king. She has a name and she has a place in the palace of the king. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Paul asks the question, who has the right to condemn us? And when he asks that question, who has the right to condemn us? There is only one answer, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has the right to condemn us because He died for us. And yet, rather than, than condemn us, what does He do? Where is He now? Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, that He sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. Speaking on our behalf. In that seat of power. In that seat of influence. And if the one in that if the one in that seat of power and influence refuses to condemn you, if the one in that seat of power and influence instead, instead intercedes for you, speaking on your behalf, then, then how can anyone else condemn you? Paul says from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. No one according to what they have done. The mistakes that they have made. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him as thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. Behold, the new has come. It's here. It's here now. It's not about your past. It's not about your sin. It's not about your failure. It's not about where you've messed up or what you've done. Do not give the past, do not give your past the power to define who you are. If the one sitting at the right hand of God doesn't do that, then no one has the right to do that. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus is handing out promises. And He says to the one that overcomes, to the one that conquers, to the one that gets through all this, the one who makes it, I will make him or her a pillar in the temple of my God, and never will he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and I will write on him my own new name. I love that. My own new name. Jesus gives us his identity. He takes away all of our failure. He takes away everything that we aren't. And He identifies us by everything that we could never be. That's Bathsheba. Mother of Solomon at the right hand of the king. And that's you and me. Somewhere in God's house, there's a picture of you. And it's not in some forgotten back room in a drawer turned upside down. You have a place at His table. You have a name. Will you stand with me and pray? Father, it's my prayer that, that everyone who has ever felt like an outsider, everyone who's ever felt like a black sheep or an outcast, that they would know that they have a Savior who loves them, who died for them, and who sits at Your right hand, a place of power and authority, longing to intercede on their behalf. I pray that in this season of hope, no one would feel hopeless because of their past, no matter how long ago or how recent. And I pray that they would know that You love them and that You long to welcome them home. And Father, if they can't know that because they don't know that You're near to them, if they can't know that through You, then let them know that through us. Let us carry that message and that respect and that hope for them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.